Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Emma Ashford about her book titled Oil, the State and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates, which has just come out from Georgetown University Press. In the book, Dr. Emma Ashford presents a comprehensive challenge to the perhaps prevailing understanding of the international implications of oil wealth um, and examines essentially what is the impact of oil wealth on how states um, think about and pursue their foreign policies. It's a really interesting book. It's also at the same time as being dealing with a very complex issue, it is also incredibly accessible. Um, I as I was reading it, kept going like, oh, this is really interesting. Also, I would absolutely set this for undergraduate reading. Um, so it does a lot of things all in one book and somehow managed to do it without being 700 pages long. So impressive on a lot of different levels. Um, and I'm very pleased to welcome you, Emma, to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me and, and for the nice words about the book. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. So um, I'm a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. And I also uh, work as an adjunct at Georgetown University, like like so many people who work in the policy space in D.C. Um, But this book is um, an outgrowth and an expansion of my dissertation. Um, I I got really interested um, when I was in grad school with the links between oil and foreign policy, not on the the energy security side, um, as as so much has been written about it, but actually on the the side of the states that produce a lot of oil. So if you're Russia, um, if you're Saudi Arabia, if you're Iran, you know, oil clearly plays a role in your foreign policy, but we don't really have a lot of comprehensive work uh, that actually talks about that. And, And in the years since I've been in grad school, you know, we've started to see more work in this space. Um, but we've still not seen a lot of work that talks broadly about what oil means in this space rather than on particularly narrow questions like oil and conflict. So um, for me, this is, you know, born out of that question, um, that that sort of interesting puzzle. Um, and then also, you know, it intersects with uh, the work that I do on a regular basis as a policy specialist, um, because a lot of these states play major roles in U.S. foreign policy um, and U.S. defense policy. And so understanding how and why petrostates act the way they do is actually a really important policy question. So, so for me, that's kind of the two sides of this question. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think that sets up the book quite nicely and it is such a kind of interesting puzzle. Um, And so as we sort of explore, obviously, the sort of highlights of the book, we're unfortunately not going to be able to go into all of the detail. Um, I hesitate to even think about how we would try to orally represent, for example, the quantitative work that's in the book. Um, There's some really great tables for people who like quantitative work. But before we get into some of that detail, I'm wondering if you can help us understand Um, What sounds like a really simple question, but actually has a lot of implications that you lay out. 
how can we actually define oil producing states? This is, I think, you know, it wasn't the question that I started with back when I wrote my dissertation, even when I started redrafting the book, but it's the question that I think I ended up landing on as the most important question about the links between oil and foreign policy. Um, because the, the work in this space, and there's, there's very limited work in this space, but even the work that is here typically just sets a definition of petrostate um, and, and rolls with it. So, and, and usually that definition is something along the lines of, you know, has a, you know, a, a percentage of GDP in oil exports per year, or, you know, they're a major fuel exporter and it's like a dummy variable, are they or aren't they? Um, but, you know, as I started to think about the ways in which oil and foreign policy might intersect, um, you know, it became more and more clear that there are different ways that oil production, oil wealth could shape foreign policy, and that those have to do with the ways in which states relate to their resources. Um, and so, you know, in the book, I basically end up presenting a topology of sort of three core ways in which oil and states interact and why that might matter for foreign policy. So one is, you know, we have states that are wealthy because of their oil. They earn a lot of money on a per capita basis because of oil or gas production. Um, and that means the governments just have a lot of money to spend. So that's that's wealth. And, and you know, we could talk more about why that matters for foreign policy later. Um, there's oil dependence, right? Many of your listeners, um, you know, if they've been working in the, the oil space or the, the comparative politics space on oil, will know there's this huge literature on the resource curse um, in the comparative politics space about how states are shaped domestically, politically, economically, even socially, by being dependent on resource production and exports. So, you know, the, the pathologies of resource production and what it can do to undermine economies and undermine polities, um, you know, is something we know about already, um, but there are foreign policy implications of that too. And then the third way um, in which oil can matter for states and for foreign policy um, is how they relate out to the world at, at large. So, um, you know, a state can be a major producer of oil or of natural gas, um, you know, on a, on a level that's important to them domestically, but they don't really matter that much at the global level. But there are some states, you know, the Saudis being the, the most notable version of this, there are some states that produce so much oil or so much gas that they really matter to world affairs and they really matter to the global economy. Um, and that, again, has implications for how those states pursue their foreign policy. And so um, for me, I think breaking it down like this um, really helps us to conceptualize the problem and understand you know, how oil can act in different ways in foreign policy. And also, I think it, it actually helps to explain a little some of the contradictory findings that have showed up in previous work about this question. You know, So why might some kinds of oil states be more prone to start wars than others? Well, it has something to do with you know, domestic politics, and it has something to do with how they relate to their oil. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'd love to kind of stay on that point for just a second about this idea of the resource curse, um, because it is so prevalent in the literature. Um, and I was wondering in particular, if you could speak about the kind of section in your book that discusses this about why do we, and by we, I mean sort of political scientists, um, think tank people, sort of academia, sort of nerds, if you will, um, know less about how oil impacts the foreign policies of oil producing states 
um, when we do actually have quite a lot of understanding, um, or at least varieties of understanding, of how oil impacts the domestic policies of oil producing states. Yeah, so at uh, the risk of getting on my soapbox a little here, I, I do think this is one of the problems that comes when we set up a wall between comparative politics and international relations that, that happens in, in so many departments in a really unfortunate way. And I think it's it's no coincidence that a lot of the more interesting work that's being done, not just on oil in recent years, but but on a lot of questions, is at the intersection of you know comparative politics, political economy, and international relations when they, when they come together. Um, um, and I think, you know, the, the resource curse literature is sort of large, it's voluminous, um, it's become, uh, you know, <laughs> close to a theological debate in many ways in recent years about whether the resource curse exists or not. Um, but given that the, the priors of those working on the resource curse um, were basically about a state's sort of economic development trajectory, um, you know, and then later in the process as this debate developed, you know, democracy and autocracy were sort of pulled into this regime type gets brought into this. Um, I think it's just one of those things where people didn't really think about, well, does this have significant impacts in non-economic spheres of state activity, right? Because you're you're talking about, well, you know, how does the state manage development? How does it manage social programs? Um, you know, and those are relatively distinct questions from how do states pursue foreign policy? And so one of the things that I that I talk about in the book is, you know, this doesn't necessarily impact every state, but in some states that are underdeveloped at the time where they find their oil, um, you know, we probably have a good reason to expect um, that their institutional development in the foreign policy space, so foreign ministries, intelligence services, that that may also be shaped by having their oil wealth. And it, it may end up either with very weak institutions, it may end up with very um, sort of uneven institutions where one is important to a specific leader and gets developed and others aren't, and so they don't. Um, but, but in sort of the the trajectory of these states as they develop is such that I don't think we would expect the kind of modern bureaucratized foreign policy process that we really see um, in a lot of non-oil states. I'm wondering, could you do you have an example you could share with us of something like that, um, just to sort of help us understand uh, a bit more con concretely kind of how these impacts can play out um, within sort of how a government is organized and what foreign policy uh, implications that could have? Sure, yeah. So um, let me give you two different examples of sort of two different ways that this can happen. So one is um, that foreign policy in oil-rich states tends to arise from, as I say, from slightly weaker or distorted foreign policy institutions. Um, and I think a really good example of this is Saudi Arabian foreign policy. Um, the Saudi institutional landscape, and there's there's been some really interesting work in this in the sort of comparative politics economics side, um, the Saudi institutional landscape is really uneven. Um, and that has a lot to do with the organization of the Saudi government around specific members of the royal family. Um, and so what you see in the development of institutions, um, Stefan Hartog did some great work on this, um, is that where a minister, where a, where a prince was really interested in building up up 
um, an institution building up a ministry, um, that, that sometimes that developed pretty well. And in other cases, things were left to languish. And so what we see in the foreign policy space in Saudi Arabia is some really strange institutional distortions. Um, foreign policy, uh, a foreign ministry um, that relied heavily on expats as its experts in the early years, rather than building up domestic capabilities, um, where, um, you know, Yemen policy, for example, was not stored in the foreign ministry, um, but was given to one specific prince and his family to run on a personal level. Um, and across a lot of these, these institutions, foreign ministry, um, the Saudi intelligence services, we see um, sort of a really strong um, kind of clientelistic um, patrimonial system emerging where it's all about personal ties and not as much about meritocratic bureaucracy. So, so that's one example of where we sort of see an institutional landscape that's um, not quite what we might expect. Um, and I'll give you a, a second example um, of how oil can shape these things. And that is in a lot of um, oil-dependent petrostates, um, there's a tendency towards extremely personalistic, centralized leadership. So um, again, this is something that sort of comes out of some of the resource course work. Um, but, you know, leaders that find themselves largely insulated from you know, having to face the costs for bad decisions, you know, because they have a very small selectorate ensuring they stay in power because they've figured out how to maintain power using oil wealth as, as benefices and rents to the population. Um, and in um, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, what we saw was that that system ended up being how foreign policy worked too. So even though the Iraqis had, um, you know, an intelligence ministry and a foreign ministry, all decisions were made at the top, at the personal level by Saddam Hussein himself during his reign. Um, those that sort of pushed against his uh, decisions, even on very complicated issues like whether he should go to war with Iran in 1980, right? Whether he should invade Kuwait in 91, um, those people found themselves shut down. And so the personalistic nature of these regimes, which comes in part from their oil, um, also helps to sort of undermine that foreign policy formation process. Um, so that's that's kind of the two ways that I, I like to um, I like to think about this happening. Wonderful. Um, thank you very much for elaborating on that and explaining sort of the pathways. I think that makes, um, as you said, kind of the artificial wall between domestic and foreign very much seem um, not necessarily helpful um, and sort of break down that ability. And that then helps us understand what's actually happening. So I'd love for you to um, essentially do the same thing, help us understand a complex thing by discussing um, this idea you mentioned earlier about to what extent is oil wealth related to increased likelihood of conflict? To what extent are those things linked? Um, or perhaps there's a different relationship going on? Yeah, um, so, you know, I say this at the start of the book, um, and it's it's kind of a cop out, right? Because you know I want people to know right up front that I'm not necessarily trying to provide causal theories here. Um, partly because this is such a big topic that I think to get at the scope of what we're talking about with petrostates, it's basically impossible to get down to the level of detail where I would be able to prove causal links between each of these things. Um, but also partly because I think in a lot of cases, you know 
oil has a influencing role or a propelling role in foreign policy, but it's not necessarily determinative. It's not the only thing that matters. Um, and so that's kind of how I like to conceptualize oil wealth in foreign policy. It is an enabler. It is something that lets states do what they want um, without necessarily having to pay the traditional costs of doing so in foreign policy. And, and you know, at the, at the most simple level, um, petrostates that are very wealthy because of their oil don't have to choose between guns and butter in the same way that other states do. They can maintain high levels of social spending at the same time as they spend a lot on their militaries, that they buy lots of advanced weapons or they you know, pay their army really well. Um, they can use their wealth abroad for things like funding proxies in other conflicts. They can use their wealth as foreign aid to sort of build up their status. Um, they can even, and, and again, this is sort of one of those areas where my personal work uh, intersects with my profession work, um, petrostates can use their money to uh, buy sinecures at think tanks or at lobbying firms in Washington, D.C. and use that to influence U.S. foreign policy. So there's all these things that money can do for a petrostate. Um, but what's what's interesting is, is the question of whether that actually makes these states act differently from other states. So you could just argue that all that wealth would really do is just make petrostates more capable of doing all the things that other states do. Um, and what I find in the book is that that isn't entirely true. Um, Petrostates do seem to be more prone to use their wealth for some of these nefarious purposes, in particular arming and funding proxies in violent conflicts ab abroad. Um, they also seem to be more prone to use their wealth as foreign aid to try and sort of attain prestige in world affairs. Um, and then when it comes to the question of, of war and peace, um, you know, the argument that I make in the book, you know, is that I think we really do need to consider the psychological implications on leaders of having the ability to effectively spend as much on your military as you want. Um, you know, we know again from sort of past research that uh, dictators in particular often build very fancy armies that don't necessarily do what they want or don't succeed in conflict because they're trying to coup-proof um, their regime. Um, but but what I find is sort of if you look at various petrostates, um, you know, you look at Libya under Muammar Gaddafi or again Iraq under Saddam Hussein, you find leaders that spend a lot of money on their military um, from that oil wealth, but don't necessarily spend it on the things that would actually help them to win wars. Um, but in many cases, they thought that it would help them to win wars. They started wars, um, you know, Muammar Gaddafi started like six different conflicts against Chad, against some other neighbors um, in, a, in a decade back in the 1980s. Saddam Hussein started these two major wars that ended up costing his regime pretty dearly. Um, and in both cases, the leaders appear to have believed that they actually had the military power to achieve their ends. Um, you know, And it's not in the book because the book was completed last year, but we can see the same pathology at work in Vladimir Putin's Russia today. Um, leaders having this false sense of confidence, this misperception that their wealth gives them the ability to start wars and win them more easily. Um, and, and that actually turns out not to be true when it comes to it. So um, that's the argument I make as to why petrostates might be more prone to start wars. Um, but to be clear, it does not necessarily mean they're going to be more prone to win those wars. Mm, a very important distinction. 
Um, so thank you for clarifying that. In a related note, um, you also kind of tackle, I suppose, the myth um, of how, to what extent oil can be used as a foreign policy weapon. What do you conclude on that debate? So this gets into that third bucket of petrostates or third grouping of petrostates. Um, and it's the idea that petrostates, um, you know, the ones that have significant leverage in the international market will be able to use that leverage against other states to achieve their goals. Um, so the oil weapon um, or the gas weapon you sometimes hear it referred to uh, in the European context um, has been around for a really long time. I mean, I would say that it's been prevalent in the literature on energy security since at least the oil shocks of the 1970s. Um, but to be frank, it's much more a polemical statement than it has been any theoretical or even just empirical analysis of the problem. Um, what we find is a lot of sort of individual studies of the gas weapons, say in Russian-Ukrainian relations, um, but not really much assessment of whether overall um, there's actually really anything there. Um, and so I, I do two things in the book. I, I do a couple of case studies of most likely cases for the oil weapon to work, and that's the 1973 oil embargo and the 2006 Russia-Ukraine gas crisis. Um, and then I also pull together um, a, a, a table, uh, a listing of all the sort of known cases of the oil weapon and its use and try and determine whether it was successful or not. Um, and from that, I basically draw two conclusions. Um, one, one is that um, the oil weapon is a bit like economic sanctions. I mean, it's clearly a tool of economic statecraft, just like sanctions, um, but it appears to have many of the same limitations in its use as economic sanctions do, which is to say um, states might be able to succeed in causing some economic pain, but they're not necessarily capable of creating policy change. And this is kind of the classic problem with economic sanctions, particularly on high salience issues. Um, and it appears to be true for the oil weapon as well, right? The 1973 oil crisis um, did a fair amount of economic damage to Western countries, um, but it didn't actually produce any policy change. And we see this repeated again and again across these cases. Um, and then the, the, the second point is um, that the other interesting thing that comes out of these cases is in almost every instance, the use of the oil weapon or the use of the gas weapon was followed by an attempt by the importing state to reduce their energy dependence and reduce their vulnerability to future use. So it, it ends up looking a little like the oil weapon, um, the, the gas weapon, which tends to be a little more effective because gas comes through static pipelines, um, is basically a one-time or two-time weapon. Once you've used it, states no longer consider you to be a good supplier, and that ends up sort of hurting your credibility as an energy supplier going forward, and therefore undermines your ability to use it again in the future. So the oil weapon is a little self-sabotaging um, in that once states use it, they may lose the ability to use it again in the future. Hmm. Definitely something to be very wary of using. But you also talk about how um, oil can still provide benefits to the producing state when it comes to foreign policy, even though this idea of kind of using it as a, as a weapon doesn't actually seem to really work out. What are those benefits? 
So, you know, I think this is a really problematic question. And it was one I struggled with a lot when when working on the book, because I think, I mean, any sane person looking at the world, looking at international relations would say, yeah, states that have a lot of oil definitely get some benefits from it. They definitely get some soft power from it. They get some influence, you know, and there are things you can point to there, like, um, right, several petro states are members of the G20, um, even though in sort of development terms, their level of development is far below the rest of the industrialized economies that make up the G20. Um, you know, you could point to countries like Saudi Arabia getting, you know, more presidential visits from the US or getting, you know, uh, invited to summits more than other states. But those are all fairly anecdotal things. Um, so what I actually ended up doing was I ended up using um, a variable that was um, sanctions, economic sanctions, to try and figure out, you know, do petrostates, do these these super producing states that are so um, important to world affairs, um, are they treated differently than other states in this concrete thing that we can measure, which is are they sanctioned more or less frequently than comparable states? Um, you know, do they sanction others more or less? Um, so trying to get at this idea of soft power um, with something that we can actually measure. Um, and I do think there's a lot more work to be done there in looking for actual cases and, and sort of following through on them. So but the, the bottom line that I find basically is that, that these super producing states are far less likely to be sanctioned than other states, even if they're autocracies, even if they have horrible human rights abuses. Um, and I think that's a result we would expect, but the ability to actually look at it and say, well, numerically, you know, it is actually true, um, implies that there is definitely something to it. And definitely adds to our understanding. Um, anecdotes are great. Having anecdotes and numbers is even better. Um, so thank you very much uh, for that contribution. Uh, regardless of the fact that the whole book has loads of contributions, um, that's definitely one of them. You go on, however, to, um, as the book kind of comes to the end, you look at some really interesting aspects um, that maybe we don't necessarily always think about when we think about oil and foreign policy, uh, which is, again, this idea of new technologies impacting existing petrostates and perhaps even creating new petrostates. Um, perhaps this is, again, sort of due to barriers of international relations doesn't always think about sort of domestic technological innovation and what impact that could have. Um, but thankfully, because it is really fascinating, you do explore it in the book. So I'm wondering if you can sort of tell us a little bit about kind of how you think new technologies um, might have impacts on this kind of world of petrostates and their foreign policies. So this is another case, I think, where, um, you know, other fields have some really great insights that the international relations scholars, and I think particularly people that work on foreign policy questions, um, you know, can stand to, to really pull in some of these insights. Um, energy markets are going through this huge change, this um, very historic change that we haven't seen in, you know, I mean, nearly 100 years, depending on how you define these things, right? The last major shift between fuels that we saw was back when we shifted mostly from coal to oil. You could, I guess, make an argument for, you know, the advent of nuclear fuel, but we are going through a period of major change in um, global energy markets. Um, and technology is at the root 
of that shift. Um, uh, you know, and many people at this point, I think, will be familiar with the very basic contours of those shifts. The the rise of uh, technology, uh, a process for extracting oil and gas known as hydraulic fracturing or fracking. Um, it's not a new technology, but they figured out, oil and gas companies have figured out a way to make it easier and more profitable. Um, and as a result, what we've seen is that the, the geographical locus of energy production has shifted from being in the Middle East and in Africa to, to some extent, has shifted back to being in the Western Hemisphere. The United States is now the biggest producer of oil and gas, Canada you know, is is a major producer. Other sort of developed countries are starting to to use fracking to increase their own homegrown supply. Um, and all of that obviously has some foreign policy implications. Um, but when you combine that with other new technologies, things like um, deep offshore drilling, um, the ability to pull oil from various kinds of sort of tar sands and a lot of other technical stuff that I won't bore listeners with. Um, what you see is that there are some places around the world, most particularly um, offshore developments in Africa, where we might actually see new petrostates um, and new oil dependent states um, in the coming decades. Um, and all of this is interacting with um, the you know, potential for a green transition, um, for climate change concerns to push states away from oil. And so again, there's some excellent work out there on this, um, you know, just talking about the political ramifications of these shifts, um, talking about the economic ramifications more broadly. Um, but in the foreign policy space, you know, I would say that this suggests we might see some new petrostates who might have similar pathologies to the ones we've already talked about. Um, but then perhaps more importantly, some of these petrostates that we've, we've talked about um, maybe in for a very difficult couple of decades. They, they may see their influence decline as production declines. Um, they may continue to experience the pathologies of the resource curse in foreign policy, um, but without the benefit of the wealth that oil brings. And so, um, you know, I think that the question of new petrostates is, is an interesting one, but the question of what this is going to do to existing petrostates as the world potentially moves away from their production um, is, is a really important one because it could be a sign for future instability in these places. And that's something, you know, political scientists should care about. Definitely. Um, but I do want to stay on this idea of new petrostates for a moment before I ask you to predict the future, which I probably will do. <laughs> um, is the US a petrostate then? I think that may be the question I've been asked most in the decade or so I've been trying to finish this book. Um, and the answer is yes. Uh, the United States is a petrostate, but not by all definitions, right? So if we go back to those um, sort of three buckets of petrostates, um, America is definitely a super producing state, right? It's very important to world oil markets. Um, right now, just depending on how you define it, 16 to 18% of world supply in any given year. That's a lot of oil. Um, America may or may not be oil wealthy. Um, we are starting to see more income to the government on a per capita basis from resource production. Um, but there's been a lot of up and downs in the market in recent years. And so that's not particularly clear cut. So I think I would hold off on saying America is oil wealthy 
in that respect. Um, and then America's definitely not oil dependent, not in the way that poor underdeveloped resource producing states are. America, um, you know, a bit like Norway, sort of that classical petrostate where the resource curse didn't apply. America, uh, you know, found its oil um, even the first time around, even in the 19th century, when it had relatively well-developed institutions. Um, and by the time fracking came along, you know, a couple of decades back, um, there was really no risk that oil production, um, even oil export, if and when we get to that stage, will undermine American institutions and, and undermine the American economy. So the answer is a qualified yes. America is a petrostate, um, but really only in the one sense. Hmm. Interesting. I will then ask you to um, predict the future a little bit. But before listeners um, think that this is too mean, it is based on um, a very interesting thing you say in the conclusion of the book, where you say that we might have reached, quote, peak petrostate. Why do you think that? That is to be honest, not an original observation of mine. Um, at least the petrostate part, maybe. Um, but the fact that we may have reached peak oil demand is not an original assertion. Um, there are a variety of scholars and policy analysts, folks that work in the energy space, who believe that we may be at or near peak oil demand. Um, and that is very different from the old notion of peak oil, um, which was basically that one day we'd extract all the oil and run out of it and be left with nothing. Um, now the talk is, you know, with the potential transition to, you know, more green sources of energy, um, transition in some places to natural gas, to nuclear fuels, um, that, that the world is effectively going to see declining oil demand going forward, um, and that at some point it will tail off and become quite small, leaving these petrostates um, really nowhere to, to sell their resources or a, a limited set of places to sell the oil that they're producing. Um, and so, you know, the reason I say we may be near peak petrostate is simply that when you look at market dynamics in recent years, you look at the COVID crisis, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, um, 2014, we had a huge price drop in oil. Um, it's been a pretty volatile time to be uh, an oil producer, and the prospects going forward look even more grim. Um, and so while I think we're going to see some states begin to produce more oil, my guess is that over the next four or five decades, um, what we will eventually see is countries mostly getting out of the oil production business if they're lucky enough to do so, if they plan it right and, and manage to find alternatives, um, you know, looking for ways to get away from this industry that is in a long-term decline. Hmm. We'll see who is lucky then. Um, we'll see what happens to the new Petra states. Um, this, is, this book, I think, sets a lot of us up for a very interesting um, ability to kind of analyse future developments, uh, which is really helpful. So thank you again for sort of contributing that for our understanding. Um, but before I let you go, I'm wondering if you might be able to give us a hint of what you might be working on now or next, given that the book is published. <sighs> 
Well, uh, that's a, you know, always a difficult question. Um, yeah. So, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm more of a policy scholar than an academic. So, you know, I, I spend a lot of time doing sort of short form work, but I do have a second book in the works. Um, it's not related to oil at all. It's much closer to my day job in that it talks about US foreign policy and grand strategy from a, a realist point of view. So that's probably what's coming next if I ever actually manage to write it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Well, best of luck on that. And while you are off um, doing that, as well as writing numerous other things and communicating in lots of different ways beyond just academic books, um, listeners can read the book that we've been primarily discussing, which as a reminder is titled Oil, the State and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates from Georgetown University Press in 2022. Dr. M. Ashford, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me.